Hi everyone, I'm 2010 Olympic silver medalist and TSN curling analyst Cheryl Bernard. On this, the third episode of Behind the Hack, my guest is Jerry Peckham, the Director of High Performance with Curling Canada, who has quietly helped Canadian curlers and teams prepare for major events for well over 20 years. A quick word from our sponsor, and then Jerry Peckham. Curler's Corner is located inside the Calgary Curling Club. It is your one-stop curling shop no matter where you are in the world. Celebrating 24 years, Curler's Corner is family-owned and operated and has been providing curlers of all levels from beginners to world champions with the equipment they need to give their best performance on the ice. Whether you're looking for a broom, shoes, a slider, gloves, embroidery, or customized apparel, or simply looking for gifts for your next bond spiel, Curler's Corner has what you need to fill your curling equipment needs. Drop in the Curler's Corner at the Calgary Curling Club, give them a call at 403-270-0220, or visit www.curlerscorner.com. Curler's Corner, your one-stop curling shop. You have been through six Olympics as the High Performance Director for Curling Canada, and I just learned yesterday you were even part of the 88 selection process, which is pretty incredible. Uh, you've been behind the scenes as the High Performance Director for Curling Canada for 27 years, and probably by behind the scenes, I mean that you've never been one, I don't think, that's ever searched out the spotlight, uh, in fact, quite the opposite. But uh, in my opinion, you probably should have your name on uh, many Canadian and Olympic trophies along the way. Uh, your commitment to excellence in curling performance has been so evident to all of us that know you, and you played a huge part um, in our success at the 2010 Olympics. It was uh, pretty incredible uh, for us to just get some time with you leading up to that. And I think that's one of the biggest things that I have noticed over the years that team uh, will do a lot just to get five minutes to sit down with you and talk because I think you just have that ability to uh, push players to that next level. And so today I think you and I are going to discuss a little bit about how athletes can create their best performance on demand in must-win games under huge pressure. So I, I really appreciate you joining me today, Jerry. Thank you. Thanks, Cheryl. So I want to start with a quick look back, um, I think, to this season. We had, uh, I'm sure, in your opinion, a pretty incredible run for the men and the women at the World Championships, both going undefeated. And if you looked back just from your own sitting in your office, in your chair, uh, could you define, define two or three things that elevated these teams to the next level, things that allowed them to have that higher ceiling that we noticed this year? Yeah, I mean, I, I would suggest um, there were some similarities between those two teams, um, certainly starting with um, their dedication and their work ethic. Both teams were, uh, I would suggest, fully engaged with the wide array of performance skills and attributes required, you know, to provide some certainty as to your um, performance on that international stage. So very dedicated teams, uh, teams that spend a lot of time in kind of assessing and evaluating and analyzing exactly where they were and then taking it upon themselves to train and invest accordingly. So both teams, I believe, up their on-ice performance through addressing technical skill set. 
both teams, I think, became better teams and better teammates in the process, and they were dedicated to that cause. I think both skips continue to evolve as uh, as leaders and took great pride in, in becoming um, good leaders and therefore uh, became quite adept at, at um, you know, facilitating the performance of their teammates. And I also think that both teams paid some attention, you know, just to the overall uh, contribution of, of wellness and well-being within a team dynamic to sustaining competitive performance. So those were some similarities from my vantage point. Now, you and I have spoken many times over the years about that team dynamic thing and, and team dynamics and understanding how uh, to be a better teammate how to, uh, to, to bring the best out in your other teammates and just how critical it is to team success. And I think one of the unusually unique things with curling is that it's such a small team and that has its own challenges. When you look at something like a basketball or a hockey team where if there's relationships that struggle, you can kind of avoid them and hide. But with a four-man team, you know, relationships have to be strong and issues have to be addressed. And I think that was the biggest thing that I noticed with Holman's team, especially this year, was the strength of their dynamics. And it was evident, like their on-ice and technical skill that they'd worked on, that they had worked on the dynamics and the communication. I, I noticed a transformation with Rachel just in the way she took information and communication from the others in front of her. So can you talk a bit about, I guess, how important this is and how teams can build this on their own teams because it was the biggest difference I think I noticed with with home in the show. Yeah, I mean, I would I would suggest that your you know your observations are very astute. I think that uh, we all bore witness to Rachel stepping up and becoming I would say a world class uh, team leader and a world class skip in regard to to managing the moment that uh, she found herself in and her teammates found themselves in. And um, that was because, you know, um, she, you know, self-determined that that was going to be a critical element for her in the last couple of years. She just simply wanted to become more adept in that domain of both performing and facilitating the performance of others. And, you know, as, as you suggest, uh, team dynamics is a critical component. Not many teams invest in it. Um, lots of teams are fairly complacent about it, and as a result of that, you know, it kind of shows up at the worst possible times, a flaw in or a breakdown in team dynamics when the going gets tough and what you need is a resilient team, that sometimes when a team dynamic issue that hasn't been dealt with in the past will flare up and become part of the problem as opposed to becoming part of the solution. I know we have uh, certainly been guided in this area by people uh, like uh, Penny Werther, um, who obviously encourages all high-performance athletes and high-performance teams and, and, and associations like our own to be willing to engage in those critical and essential uh, conversations. I think there's even a term called fierce conversations um, that, that she has done workshops on. But it's just the fact that uh, you know, you have to be willing to engage, and then there can't be a consequence for having engaged, right? You have to be able to, you know, meet and discuss 
and debrief and review without there being any consequence to having done so, only um, that you're now focused on what needs to be done. Well, and, and, I, and I think even further to that, and, and you hit on a good point, that you have steps have to be taken prior to the issues happening. It has to be part of building your business, building your team, that you have these fierce conversations, you have these discussions because you don't want to have them in the middle of an Olympic trials or a Canadian championship. It all has to be taken care of ahead of time. Yeah, because I, I know, like, as you're suggesting, if that does not become part of, of your business practice or part of your culture, then uh, sometimes the debrief uh, takes longer to get over than the actual on-ice moment that uh, caused you some grief. So, you know, you have to have a skill set and some rules of engagement, but you can't just continually sweep, you know, uh, bad moments or moments where things didn't quite go right, you can't sweep them under the rug uh, forever because sooner or later, um, you know, they will cause you a problem. So, you know, it's, we're, we're, all, we're always aware of teams that seem to have that extra uh, presence or that extra kind of force about them because we know they will not wilt under pressure, that they will show resilience in times where they need to, where they almost have a bond that, uh, that is a point worthy on a scoreboard as opposed to teams that we know sometimes will wilt under pressure or self-destruct a little bit in moments where they should be pulling together. So it's a critical component for the higher performing athletes and teams, you know, in our nation representing Canada to, to invest. No, and I love that. It gives like the resilience that some teams have. I, I think of Jones immediately when you say that, that it gives them an extra point on the board. Just that they've been there, they've done that, the support that the four of them give each other out there, they've already got one up on most teams before the game even starts. Yeah, and uh, I mean, and, and the teams that we would reflect on that have been successful over the years, you know, when they are firing on all cylinders and when they are, you know, forced to be reckoned with, it's often a byproduct of a very solid team dynamic that, that they can back up to you know, in times of pressure and stress, and it will not fail them. When do you think, like, I, I'm trying to think back in, in how many years. I cannot really remember when the team dynamics thing became so big for curlers. Like, it, it's probably, in my opinion, maybe five, six years ago when teams started to address it, because before that, I don't remember it ever being discussed. It was one of those things that teams kind of looked at and said, well, we have an issue. Yeah, we should work on it. Now it's part of the team best practices. Well, I think you used a, a word a few minutes ago. You called it, uh, you know, you, you referred to business. And I think a lot of teams now are formed on a business model as opposed to just a friendship model. And if you form a team on a business model and you spend as much time together pursuing the business as teams do these days, then you need to address you need to address the rules of engagement for that four-person small business or five-person with a coach or whatever that overall team looks like. So it's not casual uh, anymore. It's not like uh, you phone a couple of good friends and away you go. You know, you recruit team members based on certain skills and attributes and you aspire to certain, you know, uh, business objectives along with, you know, um, some podium-related objectives. So. 
I think it's just more of a business mindset, and generally speaking, you need to find, uh, you know, uh, you need to find a mechanism to be able to engage with and work with your business partners. Well, and there's so many parallels between business and sport. You know, it, it's I think that is a whole other discussion and fascinating, and a lot of teams can actually really apply some of the business models to building their team if their goal and goal is Olympics or Olympic trials or Canadian championships. I think, you know, all these teams have moved the bar higher and so, you know, a lot of teams have to address that way. Another discussion that you and I have had over the years is creating or how to create your best performance on demand under pressure. So in a Canadian championship, in a big final on that big stage with a lot of distractions that seem to be, you know, in front of players and teams when they're at those events. So the ability to string together a series, as you had said before, a series of peak performances when it matters the most is influenced by what factors? What are the key things that that will affect that? Yeah, well, I, I would suggest that that is probably about the, the most elusive cocktail of them all. <laughs> Because we we certainly bear witness to teams that you know in a certain event or on a certain weekend or a certain portion of a season are capable and they step up and they perform um, you know to their potential when it matters the most and yet we can see that same team you know a short time later not have that same kind of fortitude so I think it starts by just simply being aware of how an elusive commodity that is and the fact that generally speaking there is a recipe that starts you know individually with mindset with perspective with having a you know a kind of a balanced um, outlook on competition so that you don't get in your own way in the moments that matter the most and I know that that um, you know uh, once again both of our teams this year that that went undefeated, but just simply had exceptional years, um, and were and made all kinds of precision and and critical shots when they had to. But obviously, requires a certain amount of inner peace in moments like that, and knowing that you're surrounded by people you know who uh, entrust you, and um, you know um, have your back. And there's not going to be a personal consequence to the outcome, perhaps only a scoreboard consequence. So we, we work really, really hard at the performance on demand element. And so the bringing on stream of, of you know, people like Kyle Paquette and, and the Penny Worthers and Cal Botterills of the world um, is to better our, enable our athletes to be in those moments and, and find the best of themselves. I mean, sometimes even the weight of the maple leaf can be overwhelming, as you would uh, have experienced. Well, and, and I think, too, athletes are starting to understand that it's not just getting to an event. It's, it's what you do personally, aside from the team, before you get to an event. It's, you know, and I only realized this later on in years as I was competing, that I needed to have all my personal ducks in a row, as you would call it. I needed to be at peace at home. I needed to have everything taken care of. I needed, I needed a lot of support from home to be able to go to those events and not be distracted by any personal issues. And, and that takes a lot of commitment from not just the team, but your families coaches. So that kind of a commitment or understanding, I think, is 
just recently been made aware of by players. They're starting to understand what they have to do personally to be ready for an event. Yeah, and so, you know, a couple of the teams that we talked about this year, I know that, you know, they worked really diligently at having their lives and their houses, their homes and their relationships and their, you know, uh, employment situations in order. And uh, you almost got to demand that of yourself, and then you've got to have an expectation from your teammates that that their life is not, you know, um, chaotic to the point that it could erupt at any moment in time and undermine a performance or a team's objectives. Because these teams spend so much time on the road together and so much time away from home, and they're so heavily invested in achieving very specific performance goals that uh, you can't really afford uh, too many distractors from that. You have to be able to manage. And some people can compartmentalize, but others, you're, you're just better to have peace around you. Now, do you think, do teams pay enough attention to, so we're kind of still on the team dynamic discussion, and enough attention to the mental makeup up of players when they're, you know, looking at them to join their team? I think always before the focus seemed to be on can a player make the shots, can they sweep really well, but now I think teams are starting to understand how important the dynamics is. So with this in mind, do you think teams are spending more time, and I don't know this one way or the other, assessing personalities and discovering if there's a fit? And we go back to talking about business where, you know, the interview process, the best practices, the uh, personality um, questionnaires, do you think teams need to focus more on that before they acquire a player? Yeah, I do. I think I think, and every every player that aspires to the top of the podium needs to kind of do a self inventory as well, because I don't think there's any substitute for core values. So when you're recruiting a team or building a team or investing on the critical skills associated with high performance, you can't just you can't just bypass core values and you can't just assume that they're there. You have to make that matter to you. So it was the All Blacks rugby team that I think uh, first coined the phrase, at least in a sporting environment, that better people make better All Blacks. <laughs> and so my sense also is, is that better people make better teammates and that better people often are more adept at performing well in those moments that matter the most because they have that set of core values and the stability that comes with that to back up to. So when you recruit players in this day and age, besides the technical skills and sweeping prowess, I think you need to take a closer look at, at you know, the essence of the person because I, I truly believe that that will have value at the most critical of times. Yeah, and I, I mean, I even, and I don't think I knew it at the time, but going back to, you know, our 2010 team, one of the things I just knew about the other three and I never, ever had to question or worry or check up on was their work ethic, how many times they'd be out in the ice during the week. Even when we couldn't always practice together, I knew they'd be out there as much or more than I was, and so that was unknowingly their work ethic, their core values, and, and something that I, you know, I never had to worry about, and we all had it as a team and as teammates, and I think that, like you said, better people and it built a better team. You had teammates that were that were simply and truly really good people. Yes. Yeah. And, and you could you could tell that from the eighteenth row in an arena. 
I mean, there was an, there was an energy and an aura about your team that, that just simply suggested quality of character. And so oh. it almost became like a badge for your team. Yeah, and, and it, it was definitely the best example of some of the parts. Um, you know, individually we were all, you know, good curlers and worked hard, but honestly it was one of the best examples of, you know, four people coming together and becoming so much more, and that was always something that was fascinating, and I think something I remember you commenting on with our team. Yeah, and I know that the teams uh, this year, I mean, uh, Rachel um, having to play the final three games you know, in her home province and win and then go on and represent Canada internationally and Brad, you know, having to bear the, all the expectations of Newfoundland leading up to and during the Briar and then, and then having to continue to represent Canada in Edmonton and all of the feedback that, um, that, that comes our way, whether you request it or not, about how these individuals and how these teams represent the sport, represent their country, represent their curling club or their province or their sponsors. Uh, these two teams, you know, completely knocked it out of the park this year. And, and so that, that branding element, when you brand yourself and your team and your sport in such a positive manner, you know, um, is truly indicative of, of who you are. And I think, you know, Another, obviously, another exceptional performance this year was our mixed doubles team, you know, that got us basically to the Olympics along with our team from last year. Those back-to-back -back performances on the international stage with all of Canada needing them to achieve that in order for us to be represented in Korea. So you talk about the weight of the Maple Leaf and the expectation and, and yet coming through and coming through with style and coming through with class, you know, that's another indication of quality people playing our sport and representing our country. You know what, I, I honestly, it's funny you bring that up because I remember watching that and that game that they had to win to get our country into the mixed doubles, and, and I thought there's no pressure like that. I, I don't, the Olympic pressure wasn't like that. It was... That was unbelievable, and I can't even imagine playing a game that meant that. Yeah, how do you get ready for that dance, eh? <laughs> yeah, no, I was pretty proud. I remember sending them a note after, and there was just no words. It was just congratulations. That was brilliant, and, and it was because you know. But, you know, it's all their experiences, and, and I look at what you said about Brad and Holman's team and Joanne and Reed and those are experiences that are so invaluable. You can never, a coach can never train them into you. You can talk about them all you want and what they got out of that and then they performed with it is that that bodes so well for our country, for those teams and, and for their opportunities this year coming up. Yeah, I totally agree, Cheryl. Now, okay, so a question, if you're going to create your own super team to coach you yourself with all your experiences and all the things you've seen during this next kind of Olympic cycle and I know this is a big question but what physical mental strengths what would you be looking for to play each of the four positions maybe just one thing and it could be physical or mental that you think are key or maybe it's just overall as a team what would you look for as a coach well, I guess you and I have touched on uh, within this conversation and, and previously is that um, 
that ability to perform on demand or that ability to get the ball in the hole. To a large degree, I believe it's, it's, a, it's a, a characteristic that to some degree you already have. Certainly it can be fine-tuned and sharpened and strengthened. But some people just simply want to be in the moments in which everything hangs in the balance and they want to be part of those moments. So they either want to be at the, at the plate or they want the tennis racket in their hand or they want to be kicking the field goal or they want to be throwing the final rock or they want to be throwing the lead second rock that's critical to the outcome of this end and or be involved in sweeping it or judging it or calling the line. So it's those attributes that kind of, you know, reflect um, a capability and a willingness to be in those moments that I think, you know, would attract me initially to, you know, recruiting a player or what is it about a player that would um, set them apart. Like, do you think this ability to perform on demand, and I know we talk about it, we say it, it seems elusive, but how does a, so a junior player comes up to you and says, you know, that's, if that's the one thing that you think separates the, the you know, the world class from the average player, how do I say that is a skill that some people just inherently have, but is there any possible way to train that? To a junior player, would you give them any chance to be able to build that into their characteristics as a player? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, a, it's that. I mean, that's certainly one of the things that mental trainers would be very engaged in in a variety of sports is the, you know, the skill set required to free somebody up to simply be an athlete in a moment like that. So it's, it's that ability to be able to disengage to a large degree with the thoughts and emotions that are, that are most apt to kind of sabotage the athletic performance. And so, you know, um, we always hear about the uh, athletic experience in a variety of sports where people are in the moment. And I think, you know, when you are in the moment, it's a little bit about the things that you're not preoccupied with that are, that are the most critical. And even having that awareness, uh, you hear, um, you know, someone like the Brad Gushu who knew how hard how his heart rate was uh, where it was at when he went to throw the final raw. He was aware that, you know, that that was going to probably cause him to drive out of the hack with a little extra force. And therefore, he kind of managed himself, managed the thinking and the feeling that was going through his body in advance of throwing that final draw shot. It's the awareness. It starts with the awareness, and then it starts with the ability to control thoughts and emotions, which I think, to some degree, can be either learned or enhanced. Yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting. I played our golf club championships this weekend, and, of course, golf is my – I'm like a 16 handicap, so I can be good and bad, and that's pretty much what a 16 handicap is. And so now I'm playing under pressure in a club championship, and I don't have the same ability as I did with curling because I don't have the confidence in my game like I did with curling, and I, the first two days, I'm totally outcome-focused. I'm thinking of, you know, I, I need to do this, and I'm steering the ball, and so I'm out of it the last day. I'm not going to win my flight. I go out there, no thoughts about outcome, just play the game, shot the best round, and I just find that if you could bottle that for any player, if you could go out and not think of outcome when you're throwing that rock and not think of what is on the line, 
And I think that all goes back to mental skills of being able to do a pre-shot routine and maybe take your thoughts away, focus more on the pre-shot routine and not the outcome, that you could actually have the ability to not want something so badly. Yeah, I mean, and that's, you know, to a, to a large degree, um, curling has actively been recruiting mental trainers um, with some experience and background in golf because we were looking, you know, for um, enhanced mechanisms to get the ball in the hole. <laughs> and and so and uh, and to and to help you know um, players play with feel, right? Because you've got to feel it. You can't think it, because your body will respond to what you're feeling more than it will respond to what you're thinking in a positive manner. So there's so much for us to borrow from performance on demand in golf, because we all have bore witness to those moments where it's magical and then those moments where players seem to self-destruct and mm -hmm. it, it, it's not their it's not their grip and it's not their stroke you know uh, it's not their stance you know it's what's going on upstairs so I mean uh, an individual like an you know Adam Kingsbury you know for example or Kyle Paquette for example are people that have uh, a, a very rich background in the sport of golf so we, we borrow a fair bit from, you know, um, other individual sports that, uh, you know, make contributions to our own performances. Well, I know I even remember, it was quite a few years back, and I apply, I've applied a lot of the curling to the golf, although it doesn't seem to be working as well, but the, the think box and the play box theory where, you know, you, you, you as a skip, you have to think. You think about the shot and the line and is the ice right and what's my weight but the minute you sit down in that hack, which is now the play box, the thinking has to go away. You need to replace it with something, a mantra, something so that you're not analyzing yourself. Yeah, so that little, that little analogy right there is perfect because, because it's critical um, to our sport, especially because when we go to, from the thinking box to the field box in curling, we don't have a physical rehearsal, right? Right, right. You don't get to swing the club. No, you don't get to swing the club. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you, just, you just get in a hack and attempt to produce something that requires great, precise motor skills. So how do you feel that? Well, you have to feel it, as you mentioned a little while ago, through a pre-shot routine or a mantra or someplace you can take yourself to disengage from the thinking and attach yourself to the feeling. Well, and, and so your your practice swing that you have in golf, in curling, you don't get that. You don't get a practice slide, but maybe you, and I know some players that do this, they have kind of a visualization. They see themselves quickly just sliding out, making the shot, the rock going down, and that actually is a rehearsal for their body. If you do it well enough, your body thinks you just had a practice swing. Yeah. I couldn't agree more, but you can imagine um, if, if we took two very elite golfers out to the golf course and said, okay, guys, go hit a half a dozen balls at the driving range and we'll see you on the first tee, and just one thing, there are no practice swings today and no practice putts. When you walk yeah. up to the ball, it's time to do business. Good luck out yep. there. Yeah, <laughs> I think you'd see some different scores from those guys. <laughs> <laughs> I think so, yeah. So aside from... 
I, I want to talk about coaches for a second. So aside from their experience and the pedigrees and maybe the teams they've coached and stuff, what should a team look for when they're considering somebody to coach their team? Because I think that is always it's, it's a question that a lot of teams have. They don't know maybe specifically what they're looking for because it could be a, a manager or a coach or maybe they need a group, a team around them. I just kind of wonder what your opinion is on that. Well, um, in this day and age, you're right. A team needs to determine whether they're looking for a very uh, specialized difference maker or whether they're looking for a maestro, someone to kind of conduct the band. And um, we see a bit of both, but most of our elite teams in this day and age have a performance team or a group of consultants or contributors um, to their overall effort. There aren't many coaches anymore that are recognized as kind of being one-stop shopping for all mm -hmm. things. So my sense is, in, you know, that um, with our more elite teams, they need someone to help them put together a very well-thought-out plan, right? So that's where some of our, you know, people like Elaine Dag-Jackson, uh, people like Rick Lang, um, people like Paul Webster, people like Helen Radford, and there's quite a lengthy list there of people who can help either a player or a team organize an, an entire plan with an ultimate objective. And then you will have role players within that plan. And in and, in and around competition, or just leading up to competition, I think it helps to have someone in your corner that's been there, done that. So someone that has a bit of a competitive resume that can relate to both what you're going to experience, what you're feeling, what you're thinking, where the you know speed bumps are, and how to best navigate either the week or the weekend that lies ahead of you. So I think we see teams reaching out to you know athletes of, of either another era or an era just gone past or a decade just complete or a quadrennial is finally wrapped up to look for those specialists, those difference makers. And spread throughout our system, we have people that can help organize all of that into a cohesive, well-thought-out, focused, high-performance plan. Now, it, it, it seems you have a skill for, I think, looking at a team and understanding where their gaps are and what, what they need to grow. And, and I think the interesting partnership was Adam Kingsbury. So, and I think you were part of that or, or facilitated a bit of Adam getting involved with Holman's team, but what made you believe he would be a good fit for that? Well, I think it's, I think it's probably, um, there's a few parts to that, a few pieces. Um, I would say, you know, the most critical piece to that, obviously, is the degree to which that individual has traction within the team. So there needs to be a, an instant and automatic kind of credibility factor because the whoever that individual is, they have to have the ear of and the respect of those that they're wishing to influence. Because someone like Adam, um, you know, and there are other coaches out there who can bring messages from a variety of other people. So, you know, if, if, if I have a message that I think that belongs on the table for a Team Holman, you know, or a Team Jones, or a Team Sweeting, you know, or a Team Laycock, then all I need is someone who's, it doesn't have to be me that delivers that message. 
Um, but there needs to be a, a mechanism by which that message can be delivered and received, you know, with the intention that it uh, that it had. So Adam uh, brought a whole variety of critical skills uh, to the to the equation. He was a, he's a fierce student of performance and our sport. He's detailed, analytical oriented, but he's also a team player. So he's the sort of guy who reaches out to a Rene Sonnenberg and a Wayne Dag Jackson and a Kyle Paquette and a Jerry Peckham or whoever else might wish to make a small contribution. And then he kind of packages that and filters it and determines how it is moved on to the team or if it's moved on to the team. Because within our elite teams, men and women, it's the, it's, it's the need to have a voice in there that garners sufficient respect that the team will lean in, engage, and become students for a moment, and in the process perhaps advance their own performance skills. Well, and I think what's interesting is, because years ago I would have said this, that really the only players or coaches that could coach a team and get respect were players that had done more than that team. And so, and, and I would have said that years ago, and I think that actually still holds true, but the problem is, is you're running out of players that actually have that uh, resume behind them. So with with uh, Adam or, or maybe different players or different people, you've reached out to find their own expertise that, say, a Holman, they have to respect it because that's not something they know anything about. The analytics I thought was brilliant because – Adam could bring to them data, data that they can't argue with, they can't refute. He doesn't have to tell them he knows any better or that he's smarter or knows the game better. He can just say, this is what the data is showing, so if we do this, we can change that data or the outcome. Yeah, and, and, and so when you're faced with irrefutable evidence, yeah, there, there are no yeah buts left in the room. Right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly, and it's hard. It's hard as a player. You... I think that's always been the struggle for high, high-level teams is who gets your respect, who will you listen to anymore. And, and so I thought that was brilliant bringing somebody in kind of from another realm that brought in data that, that players really had to look at and go, okay, that, I can't argue with it. There another really intriguing guy is, uh, is John Dunn, who works with the Cooey team. Oh, yeah, love him. He's fabulous. Yeah, and, but he's also a guy who you know, um, will turn over every stone and engage a whole variety of other perspectives and opinions on the different performance elements to ensure that, that his team has access to a variety of, of uh, knowledge and know-how. So he's the guy who's, you know, he's the guy who's driving that, and he works really, really hard at it, but he is a true professional in his detailed approach to make sure that every conceivable factor is considered. Well, when you look at Team Cooey and those four players on that team and what they've done, how many people, how many coaches will they respect and listen to? And I think that's what John has done. He's, he's gone out and he's, you know, found data and said, you know, when you guys do this, this is what happens. But when you do this, this happens. And they go, okay, well, we can't really argue with that. And you can just see the respect from those four players for John. Yeah, and so, I mean, obviously a guy like Jeff Stoughton has had that same 
kind of impact and success in the in the mixed doubles world to date. You know, Rick Lang is um, is held in such high regard among our men's teams, and and still continues to deliver. I would say cutting-edge insights and perspectives on various elements of performance um, that you just simply don't find elsewhere. It just continues to be that student of the game, if you will. And, you know, and we still make great use of, of Rod Kreps and, and others, you know, who, uh, who are devoted, um, you know, to the performance factors in our sport, students well, perform. Yeah, and I think really what, what you've just said is that teams now really access, and I remember our team, we worked with Rob, we had uh, Dennis as our, basically our GM, uh, you know, we reached out to you numerous times, we had Penny Worthener as our, like, I don't think these days teams just have one coach anymore, they're reaching out for some different areas, technical, mental, um, overall team managers, and I, if you can access those people, it, it just builds your team and makes just a stronger unit. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's our new reality for sure. Now, uh, one of the things that um, I think is interesting in Canada, several of kind of our elite international teams seem to have included players that have grown together since junior days. So the international teams seem to come out of junior, stay together, and have a lot of success. Um, whereas in Canada, and, and maybe aside from Holman's team, it seems like you play in juniors, you come out of juniors, you join a more seasoned team, and you go from there. Do you think that that's the best way to do it, or is it just because of our depth in Canada that, that junior teams don't stick together and move forward, and should they? Yeah, I mean, that's a really intriguing uh, question. Um, and I'm not sure that there's a cookie-cutter approach that would work, um, you know, as a, as a standard way. And so what you've just stated here is the fact that you know, we have a huge amount of bench strength in Canada. So every time you turn around, you're seeing a player um, of equal or superior skills to sometimes the players you're playing with. Or maybe one of the players you're playing with aren't quite as dedicated as they once were. Or life has changed and they're a little more career-focused or a little bit more family-focused than they were two, three, or four years ago. So I, I think in Canada, uh, the fact of the matter is, is that um, you can recruit new talent. Uh, you should, when in doing that, obviously you need to do your homework and make sure you're recruiting that sort of person that, uh, you know, I would say comes with the uh, core values along with the skill set and then invest in that player. But as you know, the anomaly in Canada are the teams that stick together indefinitely. Yeah. Some some do and and have great success, and others, you know, um, perhaps um, are past their best date, and should look at some kind of adjustment just to breathe some new life and and vigor into their team. Well, and it's interesting to me over the years you see you see teams get rid of a player or change players along the way, uh, successful teams, and people criticize it, but. You know, what I've always understood, I think, with teams is that you might remove a player because you just need, as you said, to breathe new life. You need somebody to bring new energy. Maybe you need a catalyst. Maybe you aren't getting the best out of each other. And that player, it, it isn't a criticism of that player. That player may go on and 
breathe new life into another team and win a Canadian and win a Worlds or an Olympics. It's just what that team needed, and it seems we have such a difficult time in doing that, um, maybe because we're just small teams and you get close to people. Uh, but I, I think it's something teams have to address that if they haven't had success, I think you have to stick together through a certain amount of losing time in years, but then there comes a point where maybe you've got to realize that you just need new life. And we touched on the fact a little earlier that, that seemingly there's a business model now in, by which teams are formed. And so it's not a friendship model, and it's a business model that has a little bit of urgency to it. Now, sometimes that urgency is two years, and sometimes it's a quadrennial. But there's a, I believe historically there's been more of an urgency in Canada to success than there has been in some of our, um, you know, international competitors, where there's a little more of a, you know, a, a little longer timeline before there's an expectation that you need to be on top of the podium or even on the podium. Where in Canada, if you're not on the podium in about 20 minutes, um, you're already out there, you know, looking for the new model, right? Exactly. So now we're going to talk about this year coming up because this, to me, is when I, I, I'm so excited about this year, the Olympic trials and then the Olympics in, in uh, 2018. And I I think, uh, you know, for teams, it's it's a four-year buildup. You think about it, you breathe it, you play for points to get into the trials or the pre-trials. And, and I think in all of your years, you've seen all of the trials, you've been involved in all of the Olympics, but at those trials, if you could look back to all the winning teams over the years that stood on the uh, the podium and put on that uh, Maple Leaf to go on to represent Canada at the Olympics, what do you think stood out to you that that team did or how they acted that week that allowed them that success? Is there is there a couple things or one thing that you can look back on that you just saw over and over again? Well, I think that... Um and, and you've been through it, so there's nothing quite like the Canadian trials um, as far as the amount of, I would say, kind of natural tension and the intensity and the stress associated with that particular 10-day period of time. And I think over the years, um, some of our better teams haven't managed themselves very well under that kind of stress or strain. So it's the teams that can arguably free themselves up and disengage from the weight of the expectation and the drama of that week or the intensity of that week. Because I think what we bear witness to is some teams, they think, okay, if we just try a little harder, if we just turn that intensity screw up one more quarter turn, that will <laughs> that will give us the advantage where, if anything, it's the team that can relax, enjoy each other, embrace the, the moment, put a smile on their face, laugh out loud, dance. I mean, when I reflect back on, on Winnipeg, so without any question uh, the, on the female side of the equation, the, the Jones team prevailed. But I found the Madaw team to be incredibly inspiring because they were so um, at peace with the moment that they were in. And they they were thoroughly enjoying themselves and the crowd. And I thought their coach kept them loose and relaxed. 
and they got the best out of themselves at the tail end of that week. And uh, the, uh, the other thing, Cheryl, I'll mention to you is that when you go into the trials, just like going to the Olympics, you need to make sure your fuel tanks, all of your fuel tanks, are topped off. And I think some of our teams arrive at the trials, I won't say they're on fumes, but because of, of um, I would say to some degree, mismanagement of the time leading up to the trials, and sometimes impacted by the chaos of their own lives and all the demands of, of work and family um, and other stressors, that they will, they will sometimes show up at the front door of the arena and they're, uh, they're running out of gas before they even start. So what does Wednesday or Thursday look like as it relates to precision shot making and performance on demand under pressure? Probably not quite as available. No. Yeah, and, and you, you, I think, really hit the nail on the head with Mada and what you saw with them. And it's easy to say, but it's, you know, even you and I talked about how our team went into those trials, and we had a lot of discussion about perspective, and we had a lot of discussion about this wasn't the end-all, be-all of our lives. And we really did kind of discuss it so much that we took the fear out of it and we learned how to want it. We wanted it badly but we didn't have to have it. Our lives would still be fabulous and great, and we had good families. I guess that goes more to what you're saying about being in a good place, that uh, you, you may have worked four years for this, and you want it, but you don't have to have it. It doesn't define you as a person. Yeah, so there's that value of wellness and well-being. And if memory serves me correct, help me out here a little bit. But I believe you had to draw the forefoot to win a game in your first game in Vancouver in 2010. Yeah, I did. To the pin. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and I remember being in that moment and looking out on the ice, and your team was relaxed, smiley, loose, loving the crowd, engaged, and there was no fear prevalent in the building, at least coming from from your face or the face of your teammates. And yet there you were, you know, in a in a expectation driven uh, moment, uh, full of Canada and Canadiana, and your team found a a peaceful place from which to play, and then you make the shot, and then you guys just kept riding that level of relaxation. You know, it there was a funny thing, and you know, over the years, you and I have had numerous meetings and. There's a few things that have stuck with me. One of them that I think a lot of teams could really pay attention to is I remember one time you told me that when you walked into an arena, if you couldn't see the scoreboard, you wanted to look at a team and not be able to tell if they were winning or losing. And so basically just to what you spoke about, you wanted to see them relaxed, enjoying. They had some good perspective. They're not reacting to what the score is and giving their opposition even a leg up by being down because they're losing or elated because they're winning. They just wanted to be kind of on that level, that confidence. I think it was always confidence and relaxation. Yeah, because, you know, I've been thinking a little bit, you know, with the realities of today, so whether you're playing against uh, your Canadian peer group or you're playing the, your international peer group. The fact of the matter is, in this day and age, you're going to be involved in, in a majority of one-point games. 
Yeah, and, and even when you look at the winning and losing percentages of our best teams, you know, if you win 70 or 74% of your games against your peer group, you're having quite a season. So curling is not a game of perfect. You're going to be in all kinds of one-point games. You're going to win some of those and lose some of those. Some of those will, will switch hands based on a shot that you made or a shot that you missed, and the same with the opposition. So if, if that is the reality of high-performance elite curling, then what kind of mindset, you know, will flourish and thrive in that kind of environment? Because you have to be able to navigate the imperfections, and you have to have the resilience, and you have to accept it when someone either makes a good shot or gets a good break. There are so many things that, that you mentally and emotionally have to get your head wrapped around because they are realities. It's just like if you think you're going to be, you should be two or three up on this team come the fifth or sixth end, and you're one or two down, what's the impact of that on your team dynamic? What's the impact of that on your mental mindset? What's the impact of that on your confidence? But if you can embrace the realities of what is the current competitive environment, and then go about your business accordingly, then I think, you know, which is what you guys did in 2010. You know, you, you found that right little place to be mentally and emotionally to allow yourself to maximize the skills that you came to Vancouver with. Well, and I think if, if I was to give any advice to teams going into the trials, it would just be to have a lot of discussions like get the, the elephant in the room, that fear that you all have about what if we don't what if we don't win these trials? You know, what if what if it doesn't happen? Because I think once you actually have that discussion, it sort of lets it all go for the team. You can now just go on and go about your business rather than everybody has that secret fear. What if I don't play well enough? What if we don't win? We've put four years into that, but sit down and talk about it and you know it's it's honestly freeing as a team to be able to have that discussion and, and realize everybody feels the same way, not just on your team, all your competitors, and lay it all out, and it suddenly it's freeing. I think it's a, it's a great discussion as teams to have. Yeah, I mean, uh, women's field aside, you look at that men's field for these trials in Ottawa here, <laughs> right? Incredible. Yeah, I know uh, when you look in on that, you know, <laughs> you kind of say to yourself, so... How are you going to win more games than you lose in the round robin? <laughs> yeah, and so there, there's actually a really good discussion to have is that, you know, nobody may go through that undefeated. Probably not. The teams are too. So now you got to deal with losses along the way. And so maybe as a team, that's one of the big discussions you have is we're going to have some losses along the way. And great if you don't, you just miraculously go through and and don't have that. But the chances are you're going to, so talk about it and learn how to deal with it and understand that everybody else is going to be in the same boat. Yeah, and I think also, you know, um, you know, of all the bullet points that would show up on a page that are relevant, you know, um, as you would have experienced. So I, I suggested earlier you need to get to the front door there with your fuel tanks all topped off. But then you need to manage those fuel tanks throughout that competition because the level of intensity um, is going to drain some fuel tanks faster than others. And, you know, when, when you fatigue the central nervous system, you become mentally tired. You know, it takes about three times longer to refuel that 
system than it does, you know, if you're physically drained after a tough day. So you need to monitor those fuel tanks, especially the skips that are doing so much data processing and, you know, and running that personal computer 24-7. What's going to keep it fired up? Yeah, I think that's a huge, and, and, and even further to that, understanding the differences between the four players and how they deal with the stress and how they how they top up their tank along the way. You know, some players need more rest. They need more time away. They need more downtime. Maybe they can't deal with the media as much. There's just so many distractions, and you really need to understand and not criticize the other three on your team and how they are going to deal with that week. And that should already have been discussed and laid out. Yeah, and especially in this in this day and age where this game is is built around a volume of uh, precision shot making, right? So yeah. precision shot making requires, generally speaking, all those fuel tanks are in pretty good shape to contribute to that type of, of precise decision making mindset execution. So, are you going to be as precise come Friday as you were on Tuesday? Yeah, I think, you know, and then you, you we say all of this, all the things that you have to do to show up, as you say, at that front door with your fuel tanks topped up and your life in order and your job taken care of and your technical at the best it can be. But you've got to do all of that and not make it everything in your life. <laughs> you better just, you better write that down. <laughs> I know. <laughs> that would be, that is the hardest thing to do is really, you know, do all of that and then not not make it. <laughs> yeah, pretend, pretend it doesn't matter. Yeah, exactly. I well, think that Jerry, was a, I think that was a quotable quote right there. I think that was a quotable quote. Yeah, no. You know what? I uh, this has been an incredible conversation with you. I think um, there's so many uh, teams and players are going to learn so much from this and. Uh, I think you probably, of anyone, could write one of the most incredible books when you're all done, your <laughs> amazing career, and uh, it would be a bestseller. Well, thanks for that, Cheryl. Yeah. Well, that does it for Episode 3 of Behind the Hack. My thanks to Jerry Peckham for joining me, and thanks to you for listening. Join me next time when my guest will be two-time world and three-time Briar champion, Kevin Cooey.